Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, well, this is a somewhat clean one. It doesn't have any bad words in it. What does a Canadian girl answer when you ask her if she'd like to have some sex? She says, only if you're having some yourself. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your weekend dinner parties. You just got a joke from novelist and Canadian Margaret Atwood. Yes, a racy joke about being polite. That'll help break the ice. <laughs> we'll speak with her later about her new novel, Mad Adam. Also, Emmy Award winner and America's favorite fashion friend, Tim Gunn, stops by to tell you how to dress and behave. And speaking of guns, guitarist Steve Gunn is here to suggest tunes for your next dinner party. Plus, we got thriller writer Lee Child listing his favorite tough guys, and Brad Neely, creator of Adult Swim's China, Illinois, gets carried away by Hulk Hogan, for real. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. A 21-hour talkathon on the floor of the U.S. Senate. I would not eat green eggs and ham. I do not like them. Troops are clearing a Nairobi shopping center that was the site of a four-day siege. And the Emmy goes to Breaking Bad. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are talking with Mara Eakin, the music editor of AV Club, arts and culture arm of The Onion. Mara, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? This weekend I'm going to be talking about how Rihanna, the pop singer, got a couple of Thai guys arrested just with one photograph. Oh, wow. She's a... like a crime stopper. Was she <laughs> doing some freelance private investigation yeah, on the side? That's unexpected. Well, she's a little bit of a crime stopper and a little bit of a crime doer, I guess. She posted a picture on her Instagram of uh, herself with a slow loris on her shoulder in Thailand on vacation. Apparently, this is a thing that happens in Thailand where these guys will stand on the street and they'll say, hey, do you want to get your picture with an elephant? Do you want to get your picture with an orangutan? She did it with a Soloris, and uh, apparently that's not okay because they're they're protected. So the Thai police track down these Soloris peddlers. Wow! Thank you, Rihanna. Amazing. She, I'm, I'm assuming I, I, she did this ingenuously. She didn't know what she was getting into when she took this photograph. Well, you never know. I mean, maybe she, maybe she was trying to subtly get the word out that this was happening. It was a sting. It's amazing. It Rihanna's a... like Cagney and Lacey combined. <laughs> With way better hair. Uh, I've always said so. <laughs> and first of all, what are Loris's? Yeah. Uh, Loris is the squirrely slash monkey small mammal that lives in trees. They're native to Southeast Asia. They're real popular on the internet because they have these big eyes. Uh, oh, and they're yeah. kind of slothy. Oh. Uh, there's a video of one of these things opening its eyes in slow motion to the sound of the THX thunderous sound logo. <laughs> That's what you've been doing all week, Rico. <laughs> I just watched Slow Lori. <laughs> And so the Loris is an endangered species, so it's protected? Yeah, it's protected. It's not yet officially, like, endangered, but it's a protected species. That's interesting, because I was going to say if it was endangered, on the one hand, Rihanna could argue she's raising awareness for this species. Oh, yeah. But, but if people just want to mimic Rihanna, which some people do, uh, Miley Cyrus among them, then um, <laughs> this could be dangerous for the Loris. Miley's next saying. scandal, Dancing with the Loris. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mara Eakin, thanks so much for the small talk. Of course. And now... Let's make some cocktails endangered. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a lily pad on a pond of booze. Mm, pastoral. First, the history. This week, back in 1956, a guy in New York City set the bar for winning bar bets. Bar none. Mm. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. So there are drinking stories, and then there are drinking stories. <laughs> 
It was September 1956, and New Jersey resident Thomas Fitzpatrick was visiting pals in his old stomping grounds of Washington Heights in New York City. After a few drinks at a bar, the story goes, someone proposed a bet that Thomas couldn't get from Jersey to the Heights in 15 minutes. Apparently, when he returned to Jersey that night, the challenge still stuck in his craw. So at around 3 a.m., he snuck into a single-engine plane at the Teterboro School of Aeronautics. Then, fortified by the courage that earned him a Purple Heart during the Korean War, and also maybe by beer, he flew the thing back to the Big Apple, nailing a perfect landing on the street right in front of the bar. In that gentler era, Thomas was hailed not as a threat to society, but as a minor hero. The plane's owner refused to press charges. So instead of going to jail for grand larceny, Thomas's only punishment was a $100 fine, which might explain why, two years later, he did it again. Seriously. In October 58, Thomas swiped another Teterboro plane and landed it once more in Washington Heights. He jumped out and ran off, but eventually gave himself up. Later, he told police he did it to prove to another bar patron that he'd actually done it the first time. Not surprisingly, a judge threw the book at him. Thomas spent six months in jail, then lived as a law-abiding citizen till his death four years ago. His obituary does not specify how much cash he won in the bet. So that's the history lesson. Now it's time for the drink to go along with it. I'm joined by Danny Beeson. He is a bartender at the New Leaf Bar in Washington Heights, New York City. This is, of course, the neighborhood where Fitzpatrick landed his plane twice. Danny, you heard the story. What cocktail did this inspire you to make? It's called the Late Night Flight. The Late Night Flight, appropriate. <laughs> yes, okay. it's a layered martini. starts out in a martini glass. Okay. And then it has about a half ounce of Kahlua in the bottom. Okay. And then we float a mixture that's about an ounce of vodka and about a half ounce of Chambord with about five muddled blackberries. And then to finish off the top, we have a vodka emulsion, which is egg white and about a half ounce of vodka and a little bit of simple syrup. Shake that so it gets nice and frothy and then it becomes the clouds on top of the drink. I guess my inspiration for the whole thing was the nighttime sky, so it goes through the Kahlua up into the purple from the blackberry, ah. and then it's got the clouds with the vodka emulsion on top. Well, this is probably the tastiest depiction of air pollution someone's ever assembled. <laughs> and then when a bartender makes a drink that delicate with the layers, do you get a little sad when you see someone just gulp it back without even Sometimes. It? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I do. I'm like, oh, that's so pretty. Up oh, there it goes. <laughs> <laughs> you just swallowed the night sky there. Now, have you you've been a bartender for a while? Total of seven years. Okay, and have you ever overheard a bar bet or participated in one? Not to this extreme, no. Normally it's like, hey, I bet you I can talk to that girl and get her number, but that's about it. So the stakes are much lower. Well, I think the story is wild, and perhaps what's most amazing is that he was able to find parking in the middle of the night. I know, right? <laughs> Although, in the picture of the plane that I saw, it, um, it, was, it was a small plane. It wouldn't take up that much space. Or, or I, I imagine in, in current day New York City, if he landed, a meter person would promptly come up and just place a ticket on his window. <laughs> Enrico, I don't know if I believe that Fitzpatrick only pulled this flying stunt twice in his life. You know? Really? So, like, his wife would say, 
boy, I'd like some Vermont maple syrup. And he was like, I'll be right back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why does dad always have jet lag when he comes home with a baguette? <laughs> it's a mystery. Uh, people, our website is dinnerpartydownload.org. You can fly over there and find all our recipes. And now the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is best-selling thriller writer Lee Child. Each of his 18 novels follows Jack Reacher, an ex-military police officer, as he drifts around the country. Here's Lee to tell us about his tough-as-nails protagonist and lists others that inspired him. Hi, I'm Lee Child. I'm the author of the Jack Reacher series, which reaches its 18th installment with Never Go Back, uh, the latest book. Jack Reacher is fundamentally a tough guy. He shows up, he solves the problem pretty much always outside the conventional legal parameters and then rides off into the sunset, which is an enduring theme. That's how tough guys have operated through the centuries. So here's my list of influential tough guys that I remember well. It starts a very long way back deep in the mists of history and fable with Robin Hood, but not so much Robin Hood himself. My favorite in the Robin Hood myth was Little John. Robin Hood as a story, as a narrative, was really the first great example of the sidekick. Why do we have sidekicks? It's to do the kind of underhanded, dirty work that the hero can't be seen doing. Little John was not noble like Robin Hood was, not principled. Little John was just a, just a, a hooligan, basically. But he was the one that attracted me most of all. I decided, as a matter of narrative theory, that I was going to make Reacher his own sidekick. In other words, all those characteristics, the, you know, the brutality, the violence, the cutting corners and so on, that would actually be the character. So he is Robin Hood and Little John all rolled up into one. The next tough guy I remember was Travis McGee from the John D. MacDonald series. John D. MacDonald was a pulp writer, and in the 60s he started a series featuring this guy, Travis McGee, who was a Korean War vet and who was somewhat disaffected, and he lived on a houseboat down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. But the job he did, he called himself a salvage consultant, which meant that if you had lost something or you'd had something stolen, he would get it back for you. He would charge you a 50% commission, but he would get it back for you. And then after the big score, you would then settle down and do nothing until the next time. You know, he wasn't sort of mythic and fable-ish like Robin Hood and so on. This was a thoroughly, realistically written modern character. Uh, but he had those old mythic attributes. He was the white knight. He was, he called himself actually a, a knight in slightly tarnished armor. There are 21 books in the series, and there's only one of them where anything actually happens on page one. All the other 20, nothing happens on page one. Nothing happens on page two, but by page three, you cannot put it down. Now, how does he do that? I, I'm still trying to figure it out. So the third one would be, and I'm not all that sure how tough he is really, was The Lone Ranger. 
Do you remember the, the old TV series, the Clayton Moore? The Lone Ranger! With Jay Silverheels as Tonto. The Lone Ranger was so curious in a way. He was so straight-laced. He was so normal. I mean, he, he looked a bit like my dad. And he was a little portly. You know, that belt and the costume was pretty tight. And there may even have been a corset involved, for all we know. The stories were just captivating. The, the idea that the guy would just ride into town, sort out the trouble, ride out of town, and the open-mouthed townspeople at the end. Who was that masked man? Before the lockup, do you mind telling me who the masked man is? I don't rightly know his real name, but I've heard him called the Lone Ranger. I just loved that idea of the, the transience of it, the fact that people could blow into town and disappear the next day. And obviously, again, that was a huge influence. The other thing that really worried me as a kid, actually, did he really think that mask made him unrecognizable? It was kind of token, wasn't it? Just this little tiny mask over his eyes, and that was supposed to disguise him completely. The logic problem in that always worried me as a kid. The guest list from author Lee Child, Never Go Back, the new installment of his Jack Reacher series, came out this month. Enrico, I can really identify with Lee's list. When I was a kid, and this is true, I asked my mother if I could change my name to The Lone Ranger. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. It's it's too bad, though, because I'm pretty sure the name is trademarked. Yeah. Also, I think it's hard to be The Lone Ranger when another one exists. Logic problem there. You'd be the occasionally Lone Ranger. Yeah. Folks, we're going to take a break. Coming up, Tim Gunn gives you etiquette tips when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, an essential arts and culture supplement for your information diet. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later in the show, award-winning author Margaret Atwood tells you what she thinks of doomsday preppers. Finally. At last. But first, it is time to make sure you are 100% socially acceptable. That's right. Each week, you send in your questions about etiquette, and here to answer them today is Mr. Tim Gunn. He is co-host and mentor on Lifetime's Project Runway, which is in the middle of its 12th season. Man. More importantly to America, he is one of our favorite etiquette guests ever. Yay. Thanks for coming back, Tim. You, you came by when your book, The Fashion Bible, came out. Just came out in paperback. And I'm wondering, have churches sprung up around your Bible? <laughs> we want to attend. There, there should be some churches around that Bible. That's, I agree. Have you seen how people go dress for church these days? It's alarming, actually. People wear well, kind of just jeans and sneakers. Or, or worse, in New York, they've just come in from Central Park jogging. I mean, I'm horrified <laughs> by it. Really? Well, listen, you are obviously known for your opinions on clothes. But you are also starting a home decor line, we understand. I am. Bedding, sheets. What What are your guiding principles there? I mean, are they different than the principles you would apply to, you know, picking out an outfit for the day? You're going to live with this stuff. I mean, to be honest, I think the principles are exactly the same. And given a choice between an apparel line and a home furnishings line, I'll take the home any day. Really? Why is that? Well, it's, I mean, in, in a manner of speaking, it's so much easier. You don't have to worry about sizing, oh, sure. how it's all going to be displayed and merchandised. Well, home decor, too, is just squares of different sizes, right? There's a napkin, yeah. there's a tablecloth, there's a bedspread. <laughs> Precisely. It's not that complicated. And there are some uh, people that look like they've just, like, wrapped a bedspread around themselves. Maybe they'll just do that. They'll get your cheap... <laughs> Home decor. <laughs> Roman style. Yeah. A Roman style, exactly. Also, you know, in apparel, there's that deceptive vanity sizing. When you have a size 8, ah. is it really a size 8? And with home, 
you a, know what a you're queen sheet is a queen sheet. It, that's right. <laughs> if that was the case, I'd be sleeping in a twin right now, although my, my bed has grown larger. But, <laughs> you know, uh, so you're in the 12th season of Project Runway, and this year they introduced something kind of new called the Tim Gunn Save. Yes. Where once a season you're allowed to swoop in to save a contestant you feel is getting booted prematurely. We were thinking about this. What's a fashion item or trend that's now out of fashion that you wish you could have saved? Oh, one that's out of fashion? Yeah. High concept question here. Or maybe something <laughs> um, from the past that just isn't done anymore that you wish you could bring you know, back. Or... I really believe in fashion's Darwinism, in a, in a manner <laughs> of speaking. I've never used that term until now. I like it. I mean, it. Yeah. The, behind the whole fashion Bible that I wrote is a history of fashion according to what's in your closet. Yeah. So I take individual items and trace their lineage. Yes. And things evolve for a reason, and we don't go back for a reason. Um, but is that true? I mean, we I feel like we go back all the time, you know, suddenly the well, 80s are in. Or... Well, we go back to the 80s, but we're not going back to the 1880s. <laughs> because there was a time in fashion where there were such pronounced class distinctions that for men and for women, how you dressed was a class signifier. The mm. clothes were so complicated that you needed an attendant to help mm. you get into them. Oh, wow. Yeah. I still need that. <laughs> Well, we don't have it, but we need it. Actually, some men still do when it comes to ties. <laughs> That's true. Unless I'm in a full state of paralysis, I don't want anyone doing that for me. Yeah, <laughs> it feels a little weird. But, you know, um, you talked about fashion Darwinism, Tim, but last time you were here, you talked about how capri pants... Yeah, which are still everywhere. ...are a blight on our fashion oh, nation. Well, that's where I was going next. That okay. if fashion Darwinism rings true, capri pants are going to go bye-bye. Forever. <laughs> they really are. But there's a corresponding, collaborating, in a way, force. This whole comfort trap, especially in this nation. Which is what? People buy clothes that are too big. They don't want to feel any in any way constrained. And they look sloppy. I mean, I'm always saying to, to women and to men, but especially to women, the more volume your clothes have, the more volume you appear to have. This is not mm -hmm. flattering. It's not doing that at all. So you're not going to go out on the line and say you're going to save anything, but you're, there's plenty of things that sounds like you would jettison. <laughs> Oh, there are plenty impression. of things that I would jettison. Yes, you would accelerate absolutely. fashion Darwinism. Exactly. <laughs> you exactly. would play God with fashion. I guess you have a right to do that, Tim. <laughs> yeah. Well, You've I just it. want people to look their best. I really do. And I know from experience that I can have a very combative fashion relationship with, with an individual, but in the end, she or he gets it. All right. And mm -hmm. they and they acknowledge, oh, I really do look better. People frequently ask me whether I want to have a follow-up with these people and find out how they're dressing today. And and my answer disarms them because I say no. They know they know what to do. So it becomes mm -hmm. their choice. I have the greatest respect for the decision making that individuals make. And if you want to look like a big unkempt slob, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, this plays into our, our first question, which I think I know the answer to, but it's fun to ask it anyway. This is from Elizabeth in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And she writes, at what diameter does a hole in one's pants become unacceptable? Hmm. At what diameter does a hole in one's <laughs> pants become unacceptable? That's Elizabeth in Philly. I, I will say when it's bigger than the diameter of a moth's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's so many. If this item that has a hole in it is a soul stirrer, then it, it, it can and should be repaired in some some way. Mm. Otherwise, turn it into a dust rag or throw it away. Well, I was going to say the answer to this question could be location, 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 because sometimes a strategic <laughs> hole, like in the knee, not yes. that you put it there, but you wear in your jeans. Could be is kind of cool, you know. It shows that you oh, love your clothing and your. No, I, I mean, frankly, I, I'll agree with when it comes to denim. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, there is that school of thought that says that this distressed 
Yeah. Uh, denim is is fashionable. People pay top dollar for holes in those pants. Yeah, they do. But any other item, I, I would just say that that hole is begging to be made bigger. All right. I, I have one follow-up <laughs> to this. I have a, yeah. a T-shirt that is beloved. It's a polo, but it got a tiny little, slightly larger than moth size nope. hole in it. But here's the thing. The hole was repaired by a friend of mine with a bit of similarly colored thread. But it's still pretty obviously a repair. It's not a that's hole a anymore. That's a tough one. I think that's Saturday chore shirt. Right, <laughs> yeah, I Tim? would agree with that. I would agree yeah. with that. All right. Because yeah. it makes you feel good, and that's nice, but I don't want to see it. Okay. Yeah, don't wear it out. All right. I won't, <laughs> I won't profane Brendan's eye by <laughs> wearing it anymore. All right. I think you have your answer there, Elizabeth. And now we have a question from PJ in Santa Monica, California. PJ writes, I just found some great dresses on sale but I have no idea what accessories to pair them with. Mm. To be honest, this problem confronts me every morning. Bangles or studs, clutch or purse, scarf or necklace, getting dressed is a crapshoot. Do you have a general rule of thumb for the dreaded A word, accessorizing? Help her. Well, depending upon one's tastes and lifestyle, I mean, you could go from being a human Christmas tree to being <laughs> monastic <laughs> when it comes to accessories. I mean, there, mm. there are not any rules other, other than... If you've got a lot of ruffles and flourishes in the apparel, you certainly want to downplay the accessories. If you have a big open neckline, it's a great frame for a wonderful necklace. And the whole thing about earrings is you have to also look at the corresponding hairstyle. If you have shorter hair, you can wear more dangly, bangly earrings or studs. I mean, again, it's a matter of taste. But the apparel and the accessories should be in harmony and balance, and you, you don't want them competing with each other. It's like a pizza topping. Exactly. Pick something exactly. you like, but don't let it overwhelm the, the integrity of the pizza. Perfect. I love that. I'm going to borrow it. Yeah. Tomato, sun-dried tomatoes are delicious, but, you know, don't pile them on. Yeah. I just, I'm helping to write the New Testament of the Fashion Bible. <laughs> Tickled. <laughs> I hope I get a cut of Brendan's cut. All right. Here is something from Joey in Arlington, Texas. Joey writes, what's the deal with color trends? What makes a color cool at the moment or not? These things change so quickly, it all seems so arbitrary. Has it always been like this? I realize that this is not really a matter of etiquette, but I thought if anyone, you could make sense of this. Well, Joey is correct. It is rather arbitrary. Hmm. It's the fashion and retail worlds wanting people to buy new things. And I, I say to people all the time that I'm the anti-trend guy. Mm -hmm. I have a, a kind of disdain for trends because they're catalysts for people buying things that they may not need. Yeah, they're manipulative. Well, it's very manipulative. And when it comes to color, when you're considering it, hold it up to your face and let it reflect upon your, your face. If you look yeah. rosy, then the color's probably good for you. But if you look sallow, get rid of it. <laughs> but I think the most interesting part of this question to me, though, is where do these things come from? Like, who is the Lord High color trend person that decides that orange is going to be the new black? Well, it happens about three years in advance of it actually hitting the market because the, the textile mills have to make it. Oh, mm, that's interesting. And, and there, there are a lot of, of moving parts when it comes to this. Buyers going into a showroom saying, I want these color lines. There are a lot of moving parts. Despite the fact that you don't believe in trends, when a color is popular, I remember in the, I guess it was the early 90s, like lime green kind of suit Ugh, jackets were yeah. kind of trendy. Yeah, now, lovely. The problem is once they have a big <laughs> moment, right, I feel like if you wear them within the three years after that moment has passed, 
that is really devastating. I agree. Trends, whether or not you like them, you do need to respond to them on some level. Or what, what, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, th- I think that's where a fashion victim happens. Yeah. Right? I totally like... agree. I talk about victims all the time. <laughs> How do you feel about these colored soles on men's shoes? Oh, yeah. The green and the navy blue soles. I see these shoes all over New York, and I look at people and think, victim, victim, victim. <laughs> Future victim. Yeah. I talk about looking dated, but I have to say, I, I have my own baggage when it comes to this. I don't want to buy items that I can't wear two years from now or next year yeah. for that mm-hmm. matter. I, I want things that have, have staying power. Let me ask you, was it, what's, is there an item of clothing that you feel is your biggest mistake? Never, huh? He's not going to admit it. I will. Oh, This is how much I love you guys. I've never told anyone this. Wow. I once bought a pair of leather jeans. Black <laughs> leather jeans. If you're not in a band, that's not allowed. Oh my oh God. Tim boy. Gunn, that's a you could rock that right now. People oh would no. totally they would no. oh you you could do it. Not a many people Grandpa could. would go into the fashion insane asylum. What was the impetus for that? I, I just thought there's an inherent sexiness to them. Yeah. Well, and sure. I thought, you know, there aren't any real age barriers. I I'll also confide in you this factor makes it even more sad and pathetic. They were leather capri pants? They were leather. Yes, they were leather oh. cargo capris. No, I'm kidding. No, I, I could never wear them out of my apartment. I ne- couldn't do it. Yeah, it just wasn't you. It wasn't Tim Gunn. No. And it was only recently that I took them to Goodwill. Oh, I pictured you Waking up one morning, putting them in a bag in the back of your car, driving 400 miles outside New York and dropping them off. Well, that is where the goodwill was. (laughs) Columbus, Ohio. Oh, man. (laughs) But I've really never told anyone that. We're honored and shaken. Yes. We've got to reassess everything about you, but thank you for telling your audience how to behave. Thank you, and I'd love to come back. Project Runway's Tim Gunn, who, by the way, won an Emmy for that show this week. Yes, and people, if you send us your etiquette questions, we will get them answered, and you will be on your way to winning the award for Most Well-Behaved Listener. Oh, it's a cute little statue, too. Yeah, it's got a person sitting quietly on it. Yeah, just head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click Contact. And now, the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party— the food. And Brendan, today we are going to talk about dessert chefs seizing control of restaurant kitchens. Oh no, yep. my nightmare. Cupcakes for dinner. No, don't worry, that's not what's happening. First, uh, by okay. the way, I should say for folks who don't know, head chefs usually have a background in savory cooking and pastry chefs are like their respected sidekicks. Yeah, of. so picture Keith Richards with the tall white chef's toke on. Yes. Not a day goes by when I'm not doing that. (laughs) But according to Wine Enthusiast magazine, there is now a trend of pastry chefs starting their own restaurants. Mm. And I wanted to see what a savory menu looks like when it's dreamed up by a dessert guy. So I met with Jordan Kahn. He started in pastry at the famed French Laundry Restaurant. He is now head chef and co-founder of Red Medicine in Beverly Hills. First, I asked why he thinks sweet cooks are opening savory restaurants. You know, it's a good question. I'm not sure. Uh, Definitely um, back in, like, I would say 2006, maybe 2007, um, there was like three or four restaurants opening in New York that were all dessert-focused restaurants, and they just disappeared. And dessert-only restaurants stopped opening in places, you know. doesn't surprise me. I mean, there's only so much dessert a fellow wants to eat at once. There's only so much dessert you can eat. And it's very tricky from a... You can only charge so much for a dessert. Nobody's going to pay $40 for a single plate of dessert, you know. It doesn't matter if you're putting truffles in it. Still, nobody gives a 
you know, but so a lot of people, I guess, quickly realized that it wasn't a viable, sustainable business practice that maybe it needed to be supplemented with other things. So the lesson was if you're a dessert chef and you want to open a restaurant, you better have a savory menu. Exactly. So, but I knew I always wanted my own restaurant to be in charge of everything and to see, you know, how I could, you know, meld the two. And that's what we try to do here. You know, there's, there are pastry techniques all over the menu. And it's funny because I don't even notice them anymore. Create, coming up with a savory dish and coming up with a dessert is effectively the same. Now that's interesting though, because whenever I talk to, you know, just home cooks, there's a very sharp line between people that love pastry cooking and people who hate it, vehemently hate it. They will say, I can't understand. It's more like chemistry or math. How do you, in your mind, it's almost like being bilingual. How, how does that fit together? They seem very different. They're very different depending on what perspective you're coming from. But our savory food is not different than our pastry. Our savory dishes are very thought out. They have a lot of processes. They have a lot of techniques. Some things take, you know, three or four days to make, and it's not because it takes that long to cook. It needs that long to dehydrate and then to rehydrate and then to crystallize or to freeze or to, you know, whatever it is. So You've injected the insane precision of pastry cooking into savory cooking. Right, exactly. We've really combined them into one cuisine, and some dishes have more sugar than others, I guess. All right, I'm curious to see what this, I looked at the menu and almost every single dish has something, a word that I would only have seen on a dessert menu, meringue, lemon curd or something, they're showing up in entrees. So what are you gonna let me taste here? Uh, I was thinking last night on the drive home, I was like, oh, what should we send them? And I thought about our new trout roe dish um, because it has an ice on it, like a frozen shaved ice made of snap peas. And then we freeze it in a little disc so it's a dessert process using savory ingredients. Exactly. And we're serving it with trout roe and lemon curd uh, and granola uh, and a meringue. <laughs> uh, Are you in, where, where does that come from? That is just the most... You know, I thought about that also after last night. I was like, he's going to ask me how, how I came up with this. And it's like, I don't have an answer for you. It just, it just comes. It just comes. You know, like it, this makes a lot of sense to me. So this is what we're going to do. All right. Let's taste this. I have no idea what this is going to be like. So you got it. Wow, look at this. This is the last thing that I expected this to look like. It, it actually looks like, well, I get the visual pun on this. It actually looks like a fishbowl. Is that intentional? <laughs> it's not intentional, actually. Sort of things in globes always remind me of like terrarium. So I think it adds a, a little more surrealist component to the food. It's definitely surrealist. So it's, it is, it's kind of a globe-shaped bowl. And I guess this is the ice at the very top that I'm looking at that's sort of covering the top of the bowl? Correct. All right. So how, how would you suggest I eat this? I'm given only a spoon to eat this. You take the back of your spoon, just press it in the top, and the ice will fall inside the bowl. And you kind of eat from the bottom to the top. So I kind of scoop up the layers into one mouthful. Exactly. This is definitely not a banana split that we're looking at here. Or your typical fish dish either. So I'll explain the layers. So the very bottom is a brook trout roe. And then on top of that is a savory lemon curd made with a Meyer lemon juice, snap peas, the raw snap peas, pickled baby onions, sunflower seed granola. The white powder on top is a, a meringue made from a dried wild chamomile flowers, and then some uh, young pea shoots. This is real. I've never seen anything like this ever. So I just crack it on top. Just push, yeah, just push through the top. You don't have to like use a lot of force. You're right. 
it breaks like um, brittle old cardboard or something like that, although I have a feeling it's going to taste a lot different. So then, and then I kind of crunch it up. Yeah, you kind of beat it up just a little bit, put your spoon all the way to the bottom and come up. It's almost like eating a trifle. Okay, and now it looks kind of, I would not know what to call this. It does have a cereal-y aspect to it because it's got the granola in there. It has a salad aspect to it because there's a lot of green shoots in here. This was blowing my mind. It's really amazing because it is all of the things I just said. I'm definitely getting the dessert quality of it from the lemon curd. But it's not sweet. No, it really is. Sweetness, there's natural sweetness from like the snap peas, but there's no added sugar to this dish. It just, it's the same components as you would. It's basically, you know, a trout roe and pea salad, but more playful than just having a salad. And it's got some strangely comforting and familiar aspects to it, I guess, like you said, from being like eating cereal out of a bowl. So it kind of plays with your brain a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> and it's almost the ice which is now melting, almost forms a creamy kind of salad dressing in a way. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. The most upscale ranch dressing you've ever had. Was, <laughs> I, don't, I bet you didn't expect anybody to say that. Oh, we'll take the compliment. I'm from the South, so ranch is a big deal to us. Pastry chef turned head chef Jordan Kahn of the Beverly Hills restaurant Red Medicine. We have photos of that delicious surrealist salad mm. cereal at dinnerpartydownload.org. It is definitely not a cupcake, and therefore I approve. I'm sure Jordan is relieved. All right, folks. Coming up, we chat with acclaimed writer Margaret Atwood and learn what it's like to work with Hulk Hogan. Yeah, that's what I call eclectic. We are bachelors of the arts. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, musician Steve Gunn provides the perfect soundtrack for a chill party. And in a few minutes, Margaret Atwood, the acclaimed author of dystopian fiction, smiles in the face of apocalypse. I don't think people lose their sense of humor just because the human race has been obliterated. Can't decide if that's optimistic <laughs> or not. But first, ladies and gentlemen, this show is all about dinner party conversation. And if you meet our next guest at a gathering, we're pretty sure we know exactly what or actually whom he will be conversing about. Here's writer and animator Brad Neely. His cartoon TV show China, Illinois debuted its second season this week. We invited him to tell us about the show and more importantly, the very large dude who lends one of the main characters his voice. Hi, my name is Brad Neely. I have a show on Cartoon Network. It's called China, Illinois. It's about a college where the professors are crazy and the students just want to learn, um, but they can't because the professors are nuts. We got a lot of great voice talent on this show. We have Greta Gerwig, Jeffrey Tambor, and guest actors like Jason Alexander. But I got to say, the standout in just a lot of ways. I mean, personally, everybody. Hulk Hogan, H.H., who plays the dean of the school. I've been secretly renovating the old schoolhouse. That's where we'll hold this year's faculty-only prom. And whomever I judge to be prom king and queen gets a Ferrari. So professors, pick a hot date. As soon as I knew that we had him cast, I wrote like 10 pages of just lines that didn't have to do with anything just because I knew I was going to have Hulk Hogan in the booth in front of a mic. I'm going to have him say whatever I want. So we just had him say all this crazy stuff that he's totally game for. Steve, I'm revoking your tenure. Pony, your tenure's gone too. Wait, 
What? My wife was eaten by a squid, so I don't need to hide my granny glove. When he comes to our studio where all the people are, everyone it's flocks around him like they're going to get their warts healed or, you know, like he's, it's, it's something out of the Bible, you know, or it's, he's really is like Hercules. And then when he, when he leaves, it's like an emotional shockwave went off and everyone can't work and they're sad. It's strange. One equation left. Score tied. Donnie, you're up. You gotta lie to yourself here and believe that you are me. I'm inside you. Feel me growing you until there's nothing left of you. And remember, I will kill you if you lose. He's a real actor. Um, he's able to understand what the jokes are. Delivers surprises that we often keep. I always think that I'm giving him something that he will balk at. Uh, here's a line where you say there is no God. But he goes the extra mile and says it four times uh, with a lot of spit shooting out. There is no God. No God, no God, no God, no God. Just us people trying to party before we die. I'm pretty sure he doesn't know what my name is. He doesn't know what the name of the show is. And there is a fear when you first encounter him that, oh, he has not read the script. He's going to be totally unprepared. He doesn't know what the character is. He, <laughs> last time I saw him, he was, I said, how are you doing, Hulk? He said, I haven't slept for two weeks. What are we doing? <laughs> but he counts himself in uh, to each line. He's like, three, two, one, and just nails it. Steve wins! The giant will be executed in the usual manner. Acid shall be poured into his ears. Then he will be rolled into the ocean! It's, it's, I still can't get, um over it. I'm it something happens to my body when I'm around him. Everything crawls up and starts squishing. Your whole body wants to like run off or just let him eat you. My wife is like shut up about Hulk Hogan. Brad Neely, the second season of his TV series China Illinois premiered this week. It airs Sundays at 11.30 on Adult Swim. And folks, full disclosure, if you go to our Facebook page, you'll see a lovely cartoon rendering of Brendan and me at a dinner table. That drawing was courtesy of Mr. Neely. It's true. Yeah. Which explains why we're depicted with long blonde mustaches, huge ripped pecs, and little red Speedos. Yeah. It's not super accurate, I have to Except say. for the Speedos. But it makes Brad happy. Our guest of honor this week is author Margaret Atwood. She has written 21 novels, 15 books of poetry, and 11 nonfiction books. So to save time, I'll just single out her landmark 1985 novel, The Handmaid's Tale, which earned her one of her five nominations for the Booker Prize. That's an award she finally won in the year 2000. She is also known for speaking out about environmental issues. Her new book, Mad Adam, concludes a dystopian trilogy about survivors of a plague trying to exist in a world full of genetically modified humanoids and animals. And Margaret, it is an honor. Thank you. Thanks for coming. So you're known for this kind of dystopian fiction, Handmaid's Tale also dystopian in a way. That genre draws a lot of power, I think, from making us think about how easily civilization could collapse. Early in the book, you mentioned the chaos that would ensue if something as simple as sewage or water pumps stopped working. First of all, is this how you see the world? Like when you're walking down the street, do you just see accidents waiting to happen and systems <laughs> waiting to collapse? Uh, let me say a couple of words to you. All right. Ice storm. Do you suffer a lot of those up in Canada where you're uh, from? We have been through some of them. Okay. Flood. Oh, Colorado. Or... 
Calgary this summer. Or Toronto, we had one. Or I could also say in Los Angeles, mud slide. Indeed, we suffer through those as well. So Yes, and whenever it happens, you always say, this never happens. <laughs> but in fact, it happens frequently. Or I could say, earthquake. These kind of things are happening more frequently, it seems. Yes, but it is very true that all of the things that we take for granted, such as you know, the lights turning on when you turn the switch and your room being not too hot and not too cold and there being a supply of food. All of those are dependent on a cheap and constant supply of energy. And when that turns off, such as in an ice storm or a flood, people tend to run around like ants when you pour hot water on them. Do you remember a moment maybe, because you've been doing this for quite a while, these kind of books, do you remember a moment when you kind of realized the fragility of civilization? Oh, I think about 1948, the decade when humanity was introduced to the to the atom bomb. Oh, of course. So people of my generation, it wasn't uh, plagues that were on our mind quite so much, although for an earlier one it was because they'd been through the 1919 influenza, which killed a lot of people. For us, it was the silly instructions we were given about hide under the desk. <laughs> mm, right. <laughs> the atom bomb goes off, just just get under the desk, it'll be fine. Do, do you ever watch TV shows, by the way, like Doomsday Preppers about survivalists? I would, I would be curious well, about your opinion uh, of those. For me, those are late. You know, I was reading stuff like that long before they happened along. The, the stuff has been around for a long time. Now, all you need to do is read some Jack London and Youth and you're all set up for it. Or... Oh, definitely. There, there have always been survival tales. But what I'm saying is I think audiences watch Doomsday Preppers to scoff at the people on them. You know, oh, these silly people who are spending so much time preparing for a disaster that may never come. Yeah, it's, Do it's, you see these shows differently? It's, it's silly until it happens. Like just about anything, like automobiles are fine. I'm totally safe in them. I feel real com comfortable in them. And that goes on until you have a crash. So you take them seriously? I don't. Well, you know, it's like anything. You get into a plane and if you think for a moment, you're thinking, why would I do this? Why would I get into a big chunk of metal <laughs> and expect it to go up into the air? <laughs> it's really quite crazy. <laughs> but of course, we know that that's actually one of the safest modes of transportation there is. I mean, that's that... certainly what we're told. So I think my point is, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about it, uh, even though these possibilities exist around every corner. Yet for years, you freaked us out by writing about it. Oh, uh, I think I'd... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, let us suppose that you're writing a book, and you write, sun was shining, I had a lovely breakfast, took the dog for a walk, went to my afternoon job, it was really nice, came this, home... You're not describing had... a bestseller. No. <laughs> is what you're saying. Yes. I go back to advice from the Greeks, start in the middle at a moment of crisis. I should mention, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, the sort of dystopian aspects of this book, but it does have a lot of wry comedy in it. The narrator has a very cool, very ironic voice. I'm wondering if that is to make the dire aspects of the book more palatable and not... Well, I don't think people lose their sense of humor just because the human race has been obliterated. <laughs> That's the last thing that gets destroyed by a plague is our sense of humor about it. Yeah, unless you're actually at the screaming and melting point. Uh, you don't actually change into somebody else. That would be my guess. I mean, some some books on, on those themes, everybody's very dour all the time, but I don't think it would necessarily be like that. I think there would be a lot of gallows humor jokes. Yeah, right. Along the lines of, you know, war novels like MASH or something. Exactly. We have two standard questions we ask guests on this show. 
And the first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? What is the question you're tired of being asked? Okay. What they shouldn't ask me at a dinner party is, so, you planning your funeral? (laughs) (laughs) Has anybody ever asked you that? Because that's an insane Not quite in so many terms. Instead, they say, uh, what have you got on your bucket list? Really? Yes, and I say, so you mean as in kicking the bucket? We're talking about me dying, right? (laughs) Oh, no, 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 that's not what we meant. But it actually is what they meant. That is the most impolite thing I've ever heard of. You're it's not, cute. It's not like you're, you know, on the edge of death or something. What, what would prompt such a thing? I think it's the old part, you know, the O word. But of course, if a 20-year-old thinks, you know, anything over about 40 looks pretty old to them. Uh, already they're talking about funerals. Similarly, I mean, everything's relative. I have to restrain from going around pinching the cheeks of everybody under 50 and saying, (laughs) oh, you're so cute. How did you get this job? You've got a job. That's so adorable. That's something you should not do at a dinner party. I shouldn't do that, no. No. (laughs) Uh, Here's our, our second question, which is more of an order, really. Tell us something that we don't know, either something that maybe folks maybe don't know about you. Boy, I've got no idea what you don't know. Well, maybe or something that you find that people don't know about the world at large that you think would kind of impress them. Oh, something that I, okay. How about this? Polar bears and grizzly bears are actually hybridizing. They're, they're like interspecies grizzly polars? They're mating? Yes, Is that because of environmental climate change? Because their environments are sort of growing together, I guess, or polar bears are coming? That is is what we suppose. Do we know, is the result a nicer bear or a more horrifying bear? Uh, Oh, (laughs) time will tell. All right. Uh, So you're leaving us with another potentially dystopian nightmare. Well, I don't think that, you know, you live in Los Angeles, don't you? Yeah, we'll be okay. So I don't think any polar bears are going to come walking through your back door anytime soon. But just what we need, another reason for people to move. Here <laughs> you escape. think they'll be driven south by all the bears? By the mega bears. I don't think you've heard of the gun word. It's a <laughs> thing that you pull something and there's a bang. You think they'll be more likely to fight off the mega bears than flee to SoCal? <laughs> I think so. There's your next novel, by the way. I think we just wrote it. Mega bears? Yes. <laughs> You're welcome. Even better. Mega bears in Los Angeles. Margaret Atwood, her 14th novel, Mad Adam, is out now. Speaking of which, Brendan, she insisted to me that she is not actually prolific. Hmm, that's kind of strange. She says that she has published a lot of work because she's been writing for a long time, but she doesn't actually write that fast. All right. That's her excuse. Well, all I know is that her new book is around 400 pages, and half of those pages are a list of her other books. Yeah. So. (laughs) There's cliff notes for the list. Exactly. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we have met our guest of honor, heard Hulk Hogan say insane things. Mm-hmm. The only element missing for a legendary party is some music to play. And for that, we turn to singer-guitarist Steve Gunn. No relation to Tim Gunn, but still a snazzy dresser. Fun. He's an on-again, off-again member of Kurt Vile's band The Violators, and his mellow but virtuosic solo album Time Off won him fans across the country. He finishes a tour this week. Here he is to suggest tunes from other musicians. Hi, my name's Steve Gunn. My new album is called Time Off, and I'm here to give a few songs to my dinner party soundtrack. The first song I'd like to present is titled Presentiment by an Ethiopian woman, and her name is Emma Hoy Guibra. 
I think. I don't know how to pronounce it. And this is sort of the perfect song to start the dinner party, opening the bottles of wine and bringing the food out. There's not any singing. It's really simple, straightforward, really mellow. You can hear scales and modes of traditional Ethiopian music. It's just really beautiful. I think she came from an aristocratic family, but she's basically just been a nun for the past 30 years and like just a peace activist. And it almost sounds like the song leads into the next one. It's one of my favorite songs, and it's called I Must Be in a Good Place Now by Bobby Charles from his Bearsville album. Wild apple trees blooming all around I must be in a good place now Bobby Charles, he had a bunch of hits in New Orleans. I think this is like early 60s. He may have been one of the first sort of R&B style white dudes making hits. His songwriting, you know, it's just how easy it sounds and it's supernatural. This song I could listen to over and over and over again and I have, you know. And dream of my yesterdays and tomorrow. Sort of cheesy, <laughs> but he says that he sees a butterfly and he names it after you, and your name has such a pleasant sound, and it's just really amazing to me. Saw a butterfly and named it after you. Your name has such a pleasant sound. Now, maybe you're on your second glass of wine, and I'd like to play Francis Bebe. This album is called Awakaba, and the song is called Bissau. Starts playing the thumb piano, and he's got this rhythm going, and then the bass kicks in. He's doing this like, and then you're like, whoa, kind of shadowy, very scary. And it almost has this sort of like disco-y kind of beat. So this is the song to kind of like step up the party. And then he sings. It's just his, his vocals and his delivery. He holds on to this one note for a while and it gets like a little bit distorted. Every time I play this song for someone, they're like, who made, like, where did this come from? It's one of those songs that I'll throw on as, like, an opportunity to have someone be like, what's this? Be like, well. <laughs> if I were to pick a song from my new album, I would pick The Lurker. Yeah, it is a bit of an ominous title. Just sort of wanted to pay a bit of homage to some of the more shadowy kind of people in my neighborhood. A dinner party soundtrack from Steve Gunn. 
He ends his tour this weekend with a performance at the Cropped Out Festival in Louisville, Kentucky. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the Dinner Party Download for this week. But don't be sad. You can catch us all week on Facebook or on Twitter, where our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. Or subscribe to our podcast and never miss an episode ever. It's on iTunes or at dinnerpartydownload.org. Jackson Musker is associate producer of the show. Our interns are James Delahousie, Davey Kim, and Brittany Martin. Engineering this week from Charlton Thorpe. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. And see you next week. Bon appétit.